welcome to Real Talk. Real Talk is about real conversations with real people regarding diversity in higher education. I am your co-host, Jamil Harp, a student activist. And I'm Casey Counselor, a professor in the Communication, Media, and Screen Studies Department at Southern Connecticut State University. All right, Jamil, let's go. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Real Talk, Diversity in Higher Education podcast with your hosts, Jamil and Casey. Casey, how are we? Oh, Jamil, better now. Better now. Uh, We have two fantastic guests with us today, Lupita and Jay. And we're going to start off with the thing that that keeps or that, that we all have in common. We have a few things in common, but a really big one is comics. Yes, Casey first introduced me to the idea of con- comics in his class, and I was extremely hesitant at first, but after a while, I am now a comic. I've been radicalized, so I'm extremely excited for today's conversation. Yes, and we also, so Jay, you are our first in season two. Uh, you're the first off-campus guest that we have. Very exciting, too. Thank you so much for being here. Lupita, you are the first uh, sibling of a guest that we've had on oh, the podcast. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you so haven't Lu- listened to my sister's episode, what was it, episode five? Four. Four, episode four. Yeah, go, go listen to that one. Yep. Mm-hmm. So let's just get into it. So Jay, you are a cancer biologist. Correct. And a cartoonist. Yes. Those two things um, often don't go together. And, and, you know, a lot of folks might think once you're once you're working um, in the field as a scientist, you might let comics go. But what is it that has you actually leaning into comics? What do you use comics for? Um, It's kind of interesting because I think instead of letting go of comics, I gained comics while I was pursuing my science education. So um, I started making comics during my my Ph.D., and mainly because I thought it was a better way to engage people with science material that is typically full of jargon and behind a paywall. So in every way possible, just inaccessible unless you are directly in that field. So comics was a way to try and start to remove some of those barriers, but then also to you know, show the people that are um, doing science in and of themselves and just the diversity of people that are there doing science. And, uh, you know, one thing that struck me from the moment that we met is like, wow, Jay is not what I would think of as a stereotypical scientist in that scientists are not necessarily known for their fluency and communication. Um, like just being good at science doesn't mean you're necessarily good at, at talking about it. Um, so I love right. that, that, you are, are cre- using comics to reach broader audiences. One of the things that, that you uh, and your JKX Comics Collective have been doing is um, creating portraits of scientists, um, including historical scientists, but also contemporary folks that, that people may not have, have heard of and may not know. Um, can you tell us about that project? Yeah, um, so kind of the, the idea for JKX Comics, which was the group that I started um, or co-founded in 2015, is to not just talk about the science ideas, but to talk about the hidden figures. So if you think about the the movie talking about all of the women that were the human computers that brought people 
into space, um, shining light on just the plethora of people that are really not known about with things that we interact in our everyday lives, um, but also making it so that people that are currently living don't become hidden figures. Um, so for every Heritage Month, or we're trying, we're slowly ramping up to do every History and Heritage Month, like Black History Month, Women's History Month, um, you know, Pride uh, during the summer, just all of those months to just highlight people. Um, we're starting to skew more towards uh, living, but um, just people in science that have those identities. And I'm particularly trying to make an effort to highlight people that might have intersections of multiple identities that may not be recognized for some of them. So um, for example, yesterday, I actually did a post for Women's History Month for um, a super well-known computer scientist and engineer, and she's also trans. So intentionally highlighting her for Women's History Month, as opposed to waiting until June for for Pride. So trying to do that sort of intentionality too. And Jamila, you've been using comics and, and art in general, kind of in similar ways in terms of the recovery piece um, and, the, and the uplift. Yeah, so comics, I loved how you talked about like fluency and communication through mm -hmm. comics. Comics is something that's approachable that is easy to understand. And I think we all can agree within our own aspects of research, if you're not within this field and you're trying to read these things or you don't have a certain level of education, it can be quite daunting to emerge yourself in something new like this. But comics has a way of branching through levels of education, levels of fields that you don't see in many medias. Um, out there. And so, you know, with the help of KC, I have been able to turn a lot of my research on lynching and Jim Crow and some of these really dark, heavy topics into something a little bit more approachable and visually um, interesting and understanding. So comics has been a really cool format for me to not only um, dump out, you know, some of the thoughts going through my mind while I'm researching, but also to give something interesting to the viewer and the, re and the reader. Lupita, I know you have a wonderful project where you're also doing something graphic on a heavy topic. Do you want to talk a little bit more about what does that look like? Yeah, sure. So I'm currently working on a senior honor senior thesis on um, it's pretty much going to be a graphic memoir emphasis on the memoir part. Um, essentially just looking at um, white privilege in the Latinx community in the United States and then also branching into like classism racism and colorism, um, just how all those things intersect with one another in the Latinx community, which um, I don't think you can examine um, classism without examining the aspects of colorism that comes with that as well. I mean, there's, there's just so many things that come with, I think, being Latinx in the United States. Yes. And one thing, you know, so these are all great points. Uh, clearly, I love comics. Um, and I love them in, in many different ways. In the academic sense, like both of you, like all of you have talked about, there's a way that we get so specialized in our studies. And we are, you know, I, I remember the first journal article I published, I spent like three years on that, like three long, difficult, lonely, 
<laughs> anxiety ridden years. And then at the end, what do I have? I have an essay that academics like, but that when I, and when my mom is saying, for example, like, oh, I want to see what you've been working on. It's written in English and it's inaccessible to someone who is quite literate, you know? Um, and there's a way that, that we just become so specialized. Now we can take that same research, which is valuable to do in the specialized language. Clearly we need, for example, science to be done in, in scientific language. Um, there are reasons for that. And we can also translate that into comics form so that other people can understand it. I also, you know, um, students perhaps notoriously don't read the syllabus. Um, and I made for my family stories class, I made it a comic and you know what? Everybody reads it and people in their families read it. Um, <clears throat> so absolutely. I mean, I can't say enough about, about really the power and the accessibility. You just need a pen and a piece of paper to make comics or some dust in your finger. Um, it is, it is that available and so powerful Lupita, you were starting to get at this, I think about how some of these things that you experience as, you know, in, in the Latinx community, these are really subtle things that happen in interactions. And I experienced this as a trans person, like I would have a profound experience that happened in a split second. And then I'd come home and I'd try to tell the story to my partner, to a friend, and they wouldn't get it. So then I'd say, hold on, all right. And then I'd, you know, take however long, draw it up as a comic, and then I could, people would cry, you know? So for me, I feel like it's, it's um, an innate language, but there's a way that you can explain really complicated, convey complicated experiences in a way that people can really understand it. Um, and I'm wondering for both of you, Jay and Lupita, how have people, and Jamil, you too, Jamil, you too, um, how have people responded to your work? Like what kinds of responses do you get from people reading what you've done? Um, I, I think it really comes out to like a surprise or just, um, cause I do focus on a lot of like narratives related or at least the stuff that I've already shown to others um, do focus on narratives that um, go into like immigration or just um, racism and that I've personally faced or that family members have faced. Um, so it does come to a surprise to people like, oh my gosh, like this still happens. And it's like, of, of course, racism, racism did not end with Martin Luther King's I have a dream speech. No, it's still happening, unfortunately. But um, it, it does come to a surprise to a lot of people. But um, in a way, like it's been like a very, I don't know the word, like it's been like a relief being able to like show that off to the world like it feels like i'm taking i'm getting a burden off my shoulders you know like um i had to present and this uh, i had to present like a comic at this english conference and i did this comic last minute but it essentially showed me um now this moment that happened back in 2016 like right around the elections my boyfriend at the time his um stepbrother told me that if my parents didn't vote for trump um he'd pretty much call ICE to deport my entire family, which I mean, it happened in a quick second, but like it, that moment just, I, that moment was just so heavy on me. And I pretty much internalized that for a long time until I made that comic. And I just was able to visualize how I felt in that moment and the moments afterwards. And um, I don't know, it just felt like a relief to me, but it was also very shocking to those who had to see that comic at that conference. So 
um, I don't know, I've just been able to find comics to be very um, freeing for me. And then um, it opens up um, other people's eyes to other experiences. Wow. I need to see this comic. And I completely agree with the aspect of creating them can be such therapy for yourselves, where you're able to paint what is happening to you and explain to others in a way in which you can't in words a lot of times. And it really humanizes these interactions so people can see what is happening. And I, I love the topic of racism in the Latinx community. And, you know, as an Afro-Latino, I see all the time racism within our own community. And how does that show up when we're dealing with folks that don't look like we came off Telemundo? So I'm extremely excited to see more of that. But even within my own work, so a lot of my research and its sum is about generational trauma of families, African-American, Black families that are traveling through systems of oppression. You know, how did a family go from being a mist into slavery into 2021, right? What happened to that family? How did their wealth grow or did not grow? What happened? How did they navigate systems of oppression? And so doing a lot of that reading was a little traumatic and reading and understanding my own family tree and retrospect to the country and what happened to my family and how did we end up with some of the issues in which we have. So discovering that and interviewing family members and doing that research, you know, um, uncovered a very dark history that we don't discuss in our um, in our U.S. civics class, we don't discuss these things. We don't discuss, you know, family members that have been lynched. We don't discuss, you know, fleeing the South and understanding, like, what does that look like for a family um, to have to flee the South very quickly? And so for me, especially looking at what was already out there in terms of art on the topic, right? You see plantations, you see rolling hills, you see slaves looking sleepy, you know, all these romantic images of the South. Um, especially during this time, irritated my spirit while I was doing this. It really irritated my spirit. And so I was using comics and this graphic art to repaint um, something in which I thought was more realistic to the times. And when I did this art show at Yale with KC, people walked in and their jaws dropped. And I completely forgot how, I, I suppose, shocking my art could be because I look at it all day. So for me, it's not shocking anymore. But for a lot of people, they had a deep reaction, like they wanted to cry. It was a very deep reaction because they were seeing from slavery to almost modern day, these interactions and how they're similar and how they just changed into something different. So very powerful. And you do not need to read the research, right, to understand these topics. You just had to see the images, which is something I thought was extremely powerful. And there's a way, too, that, you know, people have read the history, but maybe don't, haven't gotten it in the same way that your art can convey. You know, there's there's that, that feeling component. And both of you have mentioned this so interestingly, Pizza and Jamil, that people are shocked by what you produce. The same thing is true for me. Um, and there's a way that we're truly using art to process difficult experiences um, and to be vulnerable in the creating of it. But once we've created it, it's outside of our body. And what I love about this is true of art, of all kinds of arts, is that 
once you do that, then it becomes your story as opposed to something that happened to you or something that happened to your people. It's you telling that story. And there's so much power, I think, in that, in that authorship. Can I ask a question of you all? Yes. yes. <laughs> so you all obviously are, are telling more of your personal story, the comics that you all are creating, as opposed to me, that's trying to take, you know, scientific gobbledygook and, and translate it into something that's more understandable. Uh, but still the, the common factor is comics, right? How do people, other than the shock value, once they start to understand the topic of what they're actually seeing, respond to you when you're like, oh, I make comics. Because for me, the instant I say that I do that is like, oh, it's for kids, right? It's, it's instantly pushed to something that has to be for children, even though the ideas are still very complex that, you know, an adult and anyone can understand and engage with. And so I'm very curious about if you all have those sort of similar things and how that might also intersect with talking about such heavy topics. And the assumption too, not just for kids, but that, that they're funny, mm. you know, like, oh, comics, it's like a silly thing. It's for kids. It's, you know, Sunday paper that you laugh at. Now, see, I haven't had these, um, too many of these interactions. I'm sure Casey can probably speak to a lot of these probably experiences, but what I would kind of respond to that is the reason I think comics is a beautiful addition to any body of work is the accessibility factor, right? We've been talking about that briefly here and there, but I think often in higher education, things like that get lost. How accessible is our research to the general public, to people trying to explore this field, but also people outside this bubble? And I think about that people before the pandemic would never have known I swear, shout out to my mom. I, she can work for the CDC now. <laughs> you know, she knows how things are transmitted. She's watching the rates. But those kind of experiences would not be happening without other people making really complex information digestible to the general public. And I think my comics and all of our comics does the same thing, where it takes information that maybe we have sat there and annotated and researched for hundreds of hours and deduces that into something that is manageable and easy to understand for people of all ages um, and even disabilities. And so I don't think we think about that often of how accessible our information is to others. Yeah, I think at least for me, um, whenever I have, whenever I bring up when I'm doing a comic for my thesis, they're like, oh, a superhero comic. And I'm like, no, <laughs> which I think is a big misconception because like um, franchises like Marvel or DC are just like very much in the public sphere. So we just automatically assume like comics, oh, superheroes, when that's not necessarily the case. Like I do like superhero comics, not gonna lie, but there's just a bigger world. like. I think superhero comics are just like the front image of it. Like there's so much behind it, so much that doesn't have to do with superheroes. It can deal with like what Jay is doing, um, just like all that cancer research and all just scientific stuff, you know, or what Jamil is doing. Like there's so much, there's so many things that you can go into with comics. Um, so whenever I have, so like I said, whenever I tell people they're, um, a little bit surprised, like, oh, like, it's not going to be a superhero. And then they ask me, like, oh, you're drawing it, too. And I'm like, yeah, you, I, I, I can do both. Um, I can do both. 
so yeah, those are just some of the misconceptions that I've heard about comics. Okay, so one of my current pet peeves is that people any any book length comic people call a graphic novel. And that drives me nuts because they are not all novels. Like sometimes they're a memoir, sometimes they're a collection of comics from a variety of scientists. But Jay, I'm wondering if you, if people call your current book project, if people have referred to it as a graphic novel. I get the opposite, similar pet peeve where everyone calls what I do comic strips. And it's like, no, no, these are not, like there's nothing wrong with comic strips at all. Please don't take me wrong, but it's just like, no, these are not short little things. I make comic books. Like it is a complete narrative about a topic unless it's you know me drawing a portrait then that's just a portrait, right? That's also neither a comic nor, nor a comic strip. Um, but I think for, for the book, people might think of it more as a graphic novel and the outrightly correct them, but at least when I describe it and just like, this is an anthology of seven comic books because that's what it is. That comics are really having a moment right now. Um, so I'm in the humanities and people are really excited about comics. They're like, oh my gosh, you do scholarship and comic form. Like you teach comics, like that's cool. Um, so, I mean, really, <laughs> this is a great time to be in comics and talking about it. In the sciences, I would imagine that you get more perhaps question or more more pushback around doing comics, which are like the quote unquote lowest of the art forms. So I, I've been fortunate enough that everyone that I have chosen to surround myself with is incredibly mm. supportive of what I do. So I don't come across that too readily, but I can easily see, and you know, just thinking about science communication in general and what my peers have, even if they're not communicating through a visual form like comics, that that can often be, you know, denigrated and pushed into like your side hustle or just the distraction from your studies. And so I've been very fortunate with where I am now. And like, I'm in our little break room, like at work, that when I started my position, you know, after getting my PhD as a postdoc, my advisor knows everything that I'm about. And I told her that from the beginning, like it was also very obvious if you look me up. And so she knows from the start that my goal is to have you know, run my own lab where I do research, but then, you know, I'm a part of science communication and that I, you know, try and hopefully mentor art students that, you know, chose to do art, but have some fondness for science, you know, and like have all of them just kind of feeding off of each other in one space. And there's times that she even thinks of it. She's like, hey, if you're disengaged in a seminar because it seems really busy or boring, think about all the things that you don't like and how you can develop a course to teach that better, to like imbue science communication like as things that I can do as a professor in the future. So she's incredibly supportive of that. And I've almost slightly forgotten what your original question was, Casey. Sure doesn't matter. I mean, you're bringing up this question that we talk about a lot, which is representation. Um, and I'm guessing, 
that there are many folks who see you as a role model. I know you've gotten into some mentoring, um, but how does it matter? In what way does representation in the sciences matter? Oh, immensely. Probably the most blunt way to put it is that you can't be what you can't see, right? So if you if you just think about what a like if you were to ask a child what they wanted to be when they grow up, and if it has anything to do with science, it's probably doctor, right? Other options currently for kids are policemen, firemen, or fire person, you know, uh, what have you, because that's what they can readily see. So going even through like my own career trajectory, I didn't know that this was possible. I didn't know what research was until after my sophomore year in college when someone whose job literally was to place marginalized students into research experience found me and was like, hey, Jay, have you thought about research? And I went, what's that? I didn't know about grad school until I was in a lab doing research. I didn't even really know what it meant to get a PhD. I just knew that if I did that, I could keep doing research and I liked doing research. And ironically, or strangely enough, my parents' landlord had also suggested like, hey, why don't you go to grad school? And that's also like kind of how I found out about it. Like this was information that I wasn't privy to from, you know, my parents being immigrants and me being first generation that I kind of had to, to learn along the way. So having that sort of representation in the sciences so that there's someone that can help pass that information on or just kind of be the, I won't say icon, but you know, the visual representation of, hey, like this is possible, I'm here doing it, so can you, like that would be immensely powerful. I love how you just said that, especially about exposure and representation. And I think about the students that may be listening and go, you know, okay, comics, that sounds cool. That's nice, but how does that relate to the work in which I'm doing? You know, how can that relate to my major? Can I use that for a capstone? Can I bring that into my projects that I'm doing? And Casey, I know, cause you do teach comics and I was extremely hesitant at first. I said, Jerron, I said, what, what is this? What's going on here, Jerron? You were so hesitant at first. Yes. Um, I did not see the power or how good I could be in it because often we go, you know, I can't draw. I can't do art. This isn't for me, right? Comics have to look this certain way. Whatever preconceived notion of comics in which you have in your mind, you go, oh, I can't, I can't draw hands. I can't draw feet. My comics look silly. They look childish. What would you say to that, Casey? Well, everything I know about comics comes from my teacher, Linda Berry. And so I've learned from this school, which, uh, you know, Linda's always talking about, there's no such thing as a bad drawing. And truly, I believe, you know, drawing is a basic form of human expression. And we do it very freely as children, and then we stop. Um, so I'm all about reclaiming that and being able to tell these stories. Not everyone's going to want to be a cartoonist. You know, some people, you know, Jamil, um, you took it up immediately. Um, well, not immediately, but in a lasting way. When when you were ready, you were ready. Um, some folks, they just do it in the context of class and then they move on with their lives. Um, but the way I think about it is, you know, 
uh, Barack Obama, for example, is an excellent public speaker. Does that mean the rest of us shouldn't talk? Obviously not. So, you know, there are trained artists who can do hyper-realistic drawings. That's wonderful. That, that is its own thing. Um, and the same thing with comics, not to say that, that, you know, you just pick up a pen and then all of a sudden anybody can be a cartoonist. Of course it takes, you know, time and practice to develop your craft. I would challenge anybody to whatever your major, whatever it is that you do, I will show you the way that you can use comics in that area. There's a huge field. We should do a whole podcast about this called graphic medicine, which is folks who doctors, nurses, caregivers who make comics about experiences of illness and health, um, a huge and growing field. So med school, um, Penn State Hershey's one of them, they incorporate comics into their med school curriculum um, because what a powerful way to learn empathy, to um, to process, talk about some difficult experiences that med students go through um, and stress. And, you know, there's a whole lot. Um, and so med schools are picking it up. Um, nursing schools. So I just see, you know, you name it. We have the sciences here. We have the humanities here, um, which I also love to see because a lot of times we stay in our separate boxes. And yeah, Jamil, you. Something I just thought about too, like comics is good for all the fields we have at Southern, right? It's oh, good. Yeah. You can use that in any major you're taking currently. But also what I always think about as a college student is, how much does it cost for me to do this thing, right? Like to get the supplies and really try this new thing. Casey has taught me all you need is an index card and a black felt tip pen to start, right? Which you probably already have as part of your ordinary school supplies and starting to do 60 second doodles a day. Something so simple, right? Where you just draw for 60 seconds, you see what happens and you let it go. Um, and then you take that and you kind of build upon it and keep trying. One thing I love about comics is how intimate it can be, mm -hmm. how expressive of yourself you can be, but also how creative you can be in terms of supplies you use, things that you incorporate. You know, in KC class, we keep a journal that we write stories in, we tell all types of th things. We have monster of the day, you know, little doodles. Uh, and I think that could be something which would be really good for college students' mental health, even outside of research, right? Doing little doodles and comics after your long day, um, adding in receipts and, you know, little photographs as you go through college could really be a really interesting way of keeping a junk journal or an interesting memoir. Um, of your experiences. Just some thoughts there. And Jay, you use more, um, you draw on a tablet? I have um, a tablet and I also have an iPad, which I guess is also a tablet. <laughs> hmm. um, will you tell us about, um, like I remember, I'm just amazed that I remember when you were first starting when we met in Wisconsin. And then now to see that you have this book project that was fully funded on Kickstarter in five hours, which is, and <laughs> continues to uh, to get backers, funders. Um, what, where are you going to go from here? Do you have a, a sense of of what's next for for JKX or for you? So definitely, I want to keep making more books. I think it's super fun, um, and the outpouring of support that we have had is absolutely amazing um 
even if you look at like on Kickstarter, who the backers are, just like the power of word of mouth, like the majority of the people that backed were people that either I or the other co-founders, Kelly and Quan knew. And so it's just, it was very much just like this giant hug of just like, you're doing great things, keep going. Um, and that was a fantastic feeling. And just also kind of knowing, so for, for this project, we were also partnering to donate books um, for a literacy program. Um, in the South Central Wisconsin uh, area, the Madison Reading Project, that you know, comic books, graphic novels are one of like the highest in demand things. And and yes, this is for kids, but um, just having that that approachability that they, as a child, probably don't care what the subject is. It's like I get to read a comic. That's awesome. And it's like, haha! And I just taught you some science. Like, look at all these things that are possible. Gotcha. Oh wait, did you know that there are like research, like at UW Madison? That's a place you've heard of. Like, maybe you could go there when you're older. You could do, you know, research into therapy for trans and non-binary individuals. You can do research on how ground squirrels survive hibernation and, you know, figuring out that it's actually like the bacteria in that squirrel's gut that helps them. Like, these are like wild things to even think about. And like, all of this is possible if you're just exposed to it. So I want to keep making books. It's kind of like the, the short of that answer um, because I really like that idea. So it's just kind of trying to figure out how to keep doing that, you know, keep talking to people, making connections so that I can share it with the world and share science with everyone. It makes me think of like that's I had never heard you tell that story before about your parents' landlord, but how much, you know, just a, a little comment can really truly change the direct trajectory direction of somebody's life, <laughs> you know, and books do that too. Books do that too. Yeah. Com comics do that. Absolutely. And I think that this one absolutely will. Um, we'll be introducing research um, and making research seem possible and interesting and fun at a much younger age, you know, than frankly either of us were when we learned what research was. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So that's that's like the most exciting and fun thing for me. That is super exciting. But I think that's what it's all about, right? Creating works that is accessible that exposes people to new thoughts and new ideas in which they didn't have previous even if we're just sneaking it right on in there i think about growing up how much a privilege it was that my mom bought me books my mom really was so intentional with making sure i was reading as a child and i can think about now as someone that's finishing college how how critical that was for me when I entered school, I wasn't scared to read. I wasn't scared to find new ideas. And I kind of think back to that introduction to reading. And I could imagine if I had these kind of books as a child, I probably could have dreamed a lot larger. Because the things that we find ourselves loving in college and after college is things in which we never knew existed until we read you know, something within our major or stumbled upon someone in the hallway who was working on an interesting project. Like as a child, I was a lover of bugs. You know, I love bugs. I played in the sandbox. Who would have knew I could have did something around that possibly? Um, or even now as a communication major, I never knew that existed before college communication as a field. 
I thought I was going to be a lawyer um, and just yelling in a courtroom. That was the plan for a very long time. I you never, you still might be. You still might be. I might. I think, I, I think being in law would probably bore me because it's not what TV makes it look like. That's true. But that's what excites me about comics and about all of y'all's future, right? Getting these thoughts and ideas into the hands of people in which they would never have imagined. And maybe that work can reaffirm their identities or it can teach them something new or they could see themselves in STEM, right? Like for children of color, they could see themselves in research. Like that's that's something so amazing. I wish, I hope our viewers really take that away. Because even growing up in school, not seeing yourself in a textbook, um, even when the topic was about you. So that, for me, I find extremely exciting. And I look forward to seeing all of your work. One thing that, that I really want to bring into this conversation, um, Jay, while you're here with us, uh, representing all of the sciences, I hope you don't mind, um, <laughs> is we often, you know, higher ed is siloed in many different ways. Um, it's part of why I love our friendship um, because I almost can't even picture what it is that you do at work. Um, like you have cells incubating right now while we're doing this podcast, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I, that's just wild. Um, but what, you know, from your perspective and your experience, um, what role do the sciences have in conversations about diversity, um, do you see work happening within disciplines? Um, because I think a lot of times people think, oh, science is objective. Um, but beyond representation, you know, uh, what would you say to this claim? Like, oh, science, you know, we, we figured it out. We do objective work. We're good. Oh, yeah, no. <laughs> like categorically false. Um, yeah, so the idea that science is objective. I don't want to say it's like a complete lie, right? But it's 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 because humans do it, right? And and you can't even say, oh, replace humans with a robot and then it'll be completely objective. He's like, well no, who coded those robots? Yeah. How did how did they learn their behaviors, right? Like it's it's always going to be from human influence. Um but with regards to, to some things that I'm seeing about science, um, at least right now with, with the pandemic, there's more information that's coming out of what groups are disproportionately affected from, from the virus or who has access to the vaccine. And, and it's still in the realm of science, but that also starts to cross over into policy or, you know, things that govern socioeconomic status or people's implicit biases and human behavior. Like it's, it's all very intertwined. And like even thinking things about, you know, often black women when they go into hospitals and they're being treated, they're not believed when they express that they're in pain, that it's either in their head, they're, they're over-exaggerating, something like that, and that's yep. detrimental. And part of that could also just be from how clinical studies are ran, right? It's like, who is the population in which these drugs or these diseases are being tested? If it's 
a homogenous group, then that you're basing the entirety of how you think these drugs or these treatment works, like that may not be the case just because of all of these other socioeconomic factors that will tie into it. So yeah, I love our friendship, Casey. <laughs> and it's, I wish more people could, I guess be, I'll just frame it as being open-minded just to, to how all of these things relate to one another especially with science that it inherently can't be that objective just because of human nature. I think that really leads us into a direction of figuring out how we can make our fields, you know, more diverse. How can we increase, you know, getting more people of color, more marginalized folks into STEM, for instance? Do you think comics is a good way of like, branching out and making our fields look more desirable for folks that look like us. Do with it. Um, it's it's kind of something that I also want to research, right? So there there can be research done on comic studies, right? There there can be research done on STEM ed and the use of comics in that sense. So none of those things are anything that I'm formally trained on. Neither is making comics, right? So I'm kind of figuring this out as I go, because I think that they're important questions, just like I think it's important to figure out how pancreatic cancer is working so that we can get better treatment. It's important to figure out how do we engage people um, at a younger age in a way that they can visualize the, themselves in these fields. It's important to change the system so that once they're there, they're not instantaneously forced back out. Um, so I kind of see them all as just different important questions that I'm trying to answer, but I definitely think comics can be a way with that. Whether or not it's like the best way, like only research can help answer that, but that's kind of a cool thing about it. So this leads us to, to the question that Jamila and I ask every guest in the way that we end every episode. Um, and really, I love this conversation because it has been so um, forward thinking. There's been a lot of talk about like planting seeds and how people in the future or young people now are going to encounter our work and what difference that's going to make. Um, but so here's the question. In your most radical imagining, what does higher education look like? So Lupita, you are you've got like a month and a half left of your undergraduate career unbelievable. Um, but if you had, if you could project, if you could create this, an idyllic world, what would it look like or feel like to be on campus? Oh, that's such a loaded question. Um, I know. I, I think I would very much love for higher ed to be as accessible as possible for both um, for students of color, for queer students, for students with disabilities, for students who um, are international students or don't have the necessary or right like documentation to be considered like a U.S. citizen or whatever, I want to make I I want a, uh, higher education to be ac as accessible as possible, um, and that's something that I've I don't know I try to push for as a student worker in admissions, um, but I don't know I think that would be probably the best. I don't know, the best version of higher ed as possible, just making it accessible in all shapes and forms. 
And I would guess, um, Jay, you're more of a researcher in a traditional sense, but my guess would be that that would um, make the education itself better. I mean, diversity of thought, diversity of experience simply um, makes possible, you know, things that are otherwise not possible. Oh, absolutely. And I feel like if I could add on to your wants and desires, Lupita, I would also want space where people that are in different disciplines can also see the value of the others and have increased knowledge about the other disciplines. Because even just having that little bit of information will change how you proceed going forward, right? Like I am, I am a, a, a visioned person, like I can see, I make comics. It was pointed out to me once, like the use of alt text or like camp captioning on videos and how that can lend to accessibility. And now I'm constantly racking my brain about how do I make my comics accessible? And this was literally an issue that I never had to think about because, you know, I'm able-bodied in this sense. And so of course, like I wouldn't think of it, but because now I'm was receptive to those criticisms and ideas and can think about it, like I can try and make that experience better for someone or be more intentional in my comic ma making or posting online going forward just from having a little bit more of that knowledge. So if everyone kind of has that of other disciplines, even if they're focusing on one, I think just like that, that train of thought could also make everything better. Casey, I think every episode, I always think of a new way to reimagine higher ed and I love it. I'm gonna keep doing that till we have our last episode. So for me on this topic, when I try to reimagine how we could work in this stuff into higher ed and make higher ed just better than when we started this podcast. I think we can all in our fields think of creative ways of making the information in which we are researching, learning, and gaining accessible to the general public. I think about how closed off it could feel on a college campus. And you're almost in a bubble of academia, you know, all the people around you are researching, learning, and discovering new things. But the minute you leave this bubble, other people aren't having these experiences. And I find myself returning home and around others that's not in so deeply involved in college, um, trying to have these conversations and not being able to navigate them well. Hopefully, I can reimagine higher education where we can take what we learn, what we do here, and make it transcribable and accessible to people who are just wanting to learn a little bit more about the topic, but don't want to have to jump in down the rabbit hole so far and so deep. So, Casey, what are you thinking? All right. Well, it's true that as we do this collective visioning work um, every week, there is a new kind of dimension to what, what higher ed could be and how it could feel. Um, and one thing I'm thinking about a lot right now is, is belonging. I hear from so many of my students, especially students of color, especially first-generation students, how they have never been, they've never felt a sense of belonging in the classroom. They have always been misperceived. Um, they have never been, like they've persevered to get to college, but they've never been recognized by a teacher as a young scholar. Um, and my part of what I'm, really thinking about a lot is what would it be like if leading up to higher ed 
too, that people did feel a sense of belonging and that folks were welcomed um, to be their most, you know, brilliant selves. But it, it's heartbreaking to me when I, you know, when somebody is 18, 19, 20 years old and their whole experience of education is one of being an outsider. I mean, that is devastating. Um, so that would be, that's what I'm thinking, that everyone has a sense of belonging, um, that we really serve the community and that people who are not um, officially part of the institution as students, faculty, staff, that they feel welcome in our space too, that we really serve um, our community here in, in New Haven and in Connecticut and also, you know, wherever this institution happens to be. Well, all right, Casey, this has been a, this has been a great time. Thank you all for coming. This has been this has been lovely. This has been real fun. Make sure you check out the show notes too. We're gonna have a lot of good stuff for you this time. Yep. Thank you, Jay. Thank you, Lupita, so much for being with us for this conversation. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for having me too. This was such a good conversation. I wish we could go on for hours. <laughs> well, I I'm can't sure wait it could to, easily too. It could. I can't wait to see both of you in person. <laughs>